It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Welcome to Thursday. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental with individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. Com. And uh, very pleased to have our good friend Scott Spradling back in studio on this uh, Thursday morning. And uh, it's a, a very sad Thursday morning because we learned uh, last night, Scott, uh, I was at home uh, watching the Celtics beat the New York Knicks last night. And on my phone pops up an alert that 22 people shot and killed. Yeah. In Lewiston, Maine. It's just terrible. I, I mean, it was a, a shock. And then, uh, you know, watching the continuous coverage uh, after that between uh, WMUR and uh, some of the other uh, news outlets uh, on a national basis, uh, it, it really is. And it shows this is the, the largest uh, mass shooting of uh, this calendar year uh, in the United States. And I guess it just shows it can happen anywhere yeah it yeah. really can beyond beyond the shock of, of of where this is going on we've got the proximity of being potentially involved in the situation and it's it's heartbreaking for everyone involved as they continue to search for robert card the person of interest and in the what they believe is the shooter um someone who as the story starts to unfold is clearly having uh some mental illness challenges some right. real problems that, yep. that have already been documented so we, we know we have an idea of, of sort of who we're who we're dealing with, and it's just a horrifying, shocking, and terrifying situation. Considering he has not yet been apprehended, uh, he is still uh, on the loose, on the lamb, as they say, and uh, and and hundreds, literally hundreds, of uh, police police officers from from Maine and beyond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you know just scouring uh, everywhere? I mean, Lewiston itself. Uh, is uh, you know it's in an urban area, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know there are a lot of uh, businesses and uh, it, it's not really in the woods, but uh, very close to the Lewiston Auburn area, there are you know very wooded areas. I mean oh, it's sure. Maine, yeah. it's Maine, and yeah. uh, and he's military trained, military trained, uh, and uh, and as you mentioned, he has he has a past. Uh, he's been arrested a number of times for yeah. domestic violence. Yep. And and uh, one part of the story that I didn't hear last night and heard early this morning that uh, the, the shootings took place uh, in a bowling alley yes, and uh, in a, a billiard hall, a bar yeah. slash a billiard parlor, and it was a kids' night. Oh. At the bowling alley, I did not hear that detail I last night. Heard I heard it this morning, oh. and uh, oh man, it's just and, and so you were in the news business, yes, sir. and still are to a certain extent, a little bit. Uh, uh, the you know for, for a long time. Uh, so when a newsroom gets this information, mm-hmm. for, first of all, you know how how do they get it? What are they? What are they doing? Is it, so for the, I know it probably comes in different ways, but yeah. generally speaking. So something like this, um, when when you've got an incident like this that requires an all-hands-on-deck first responder law enforcement response, more often than not, what you get is a um, two channels of, of a heads-up. One is through the scanners and law enforcement contacts, many of whom might call and say, this is happening. We're actually going to need your help sharing information to the public. 
get ready, um, you know, mount up. Uh, we've 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 gotten from my days for from WMUR, we've gotten those calls before from state police or local mm-hmm. yeah. uh, law enforcement to say, you know, this is this is big. It's happening now. Get ready. So that's one. The other would literally be from uh, bystanders, uh, witnesses, folks that are related to potential victims or anything along those lines where we get a heads up because they want us to know for the same reason. So that's that's typical. It comes, you know, very quickly and starts to require uh, an immediate shift of manpower Mm -hmm. and resources, some very quick decision making. So in in the case of Lewiston, what you end up having is. you, and you have to weigh the pros and cons of safety in a situation yeah, like this sure. because you have someone who is still at large. But I'm mean, typically you end up thinking about you go into go mode as a reporter. You you shut down the emotional side of something like this. You think about your own personal safety in a, in, in this type of a situation, mm. but you're getting to a scene. So um, for for resources, for news coverage, you're going to a scene like the bowling alley. You're going to a scene like the police department where you're most likely going to get the most updates or City Hall, which is what they've been doing in Lewiston. And then the hospital where there are victims and victims' families. Those are the first three places that you would send someone in the field to try and get clarity, to get information, and then to be able to report back as things are happening. And then there's a lot of behind-the-scenes communication. And typically what happens on a major event like this is Everything else stops in the newsroom, and it's just about this mm. story. So you have multiple producers that are now working the phones, trying to get information. Um, you've got people scouring social media to find um, folks that you might be able to talk to. And and what's the most important in a situation like this? And and I and I think almost every newsroom is, you know, there's always that. Hey, I want to be first. When you've got something like this going on, um, you just want to be right. You yeah. want it to be clear and understandable, and you kick into a mode of sharing information with the public that they need to know because part of the people in the public could be people in harm's way. Sure. So it um, it becomes a um, fire drill exercise of sorts and uh, of a singular focus. Yeah. I mean, the whole Lewiston-Auburn area now is on lockdown. Certainly yeah. no no school today no. Uh, in that area. And, uh, you know, the search now is widespread. So you're sitting in the newsroom mm-hmm. uh, approximately, what, 7.30 uh, last night when you first hear the news. And, you know, as they prepare for... Uh, the 11 o'clock news with no idea this is going on until, you know, they, they get the information on it. And and so when do they decide to, uh, I'm just talking about like WMUR specifically yeah, in this case, sure. when do they decide to dispatch a crew so to Lewiston? As soon, uh, uh, so dispatching to Lewiston from MUR, um, because of the proximity, um, they, they might do that almost immediately right away. And there is um, there are a lot of logistics involved in something yeah. like this when yeah. you've got to be live on the scene with the camera person and um, you you have to recognize that those shifts come to an end and that person has to be swapped out. So there's going to uh, potentially be a number of trips back and forth to Lewiston um, uh, by multiple crews and you might be sending multiple crews and then having them get hotel rooms mm-hmm. to just stay up there. So there's the, the logistics behind the scene are just go and then we'll figure out how to take care of you once you're there. And so there's there's a lot that happens on the fly. Some producers are booking rooms and trying to figure out how to get them clothes and, and you know, gear. Yeah. Um, and then others are working on story angles and trying to put them in safe places. Because the other the other part of this is we because he is still on the loose and they have no idea where he is. 
you have to weigh the pros and cons of sending someone right into the middle of it all because that is harm's way still. We don't know where it's safe and where it's not. Mm, so exactly. there, yeah. you're, you're going into, you're going into a, a, a domestic uh, battlefield, if you will. And that's um, that the safety of your crews starts to weigh in in ways that covering other breaking news stories you don't necessarily think about. Yeah, exactly. I know uh, uh, Ross uh, Ketchke was uh, assigned last night. Yep. So he would go up with how many people? Just one other person. Just one other person. Uh, The technology of today's news is that you can be in a small SUV and literally be in a rolling studio. You have everything you need, a couple of laptops. As long as you've got either Wi-Fi or some Internet access, you Mm -hmm. can get everything done. You can get everything cut, and you can do your live shots without the need for those traditional giant satellite trucks uh, right. that you yeah. used to see all the yeah, time. Sure. They still yeah. have them. They still use them. And when you're when you're in a situation potentially like this one where you need the space yeah. and you need that rolling studio technology, then they'll scramble the truck and send it up. But you can get a lot done in your own car. So it would just be Ross with his videographer. It was like ten thirty last night. I, I was watching the uh, the continuous coverage. Mm. It was it was it's really something because I was watching it on Fox News. And uh, Trace Gallagher mm-hmm. was in Jerusalem, yes, and and he was anchoring the coverage right. uh, of the of uh, the tragedy in in Lewiston, Maine, from Jerusalem, yeah, because he was over there, obviously for obvious reasons, right. And uh, at, at any rate, it was it was something. I, I and and then about ten thirty, they had a, in the in the corner of their shot. They had a City Hall mm-hmm. in uh, Lewiston, Maine, mm-hmm. where the press conference was going to take place anytime. And I saw Ross Ketchke going to the, the podium. Yeah, to set to up, put up mic. the WMUR microphone. You bet. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> so it was all on Fox yeah. News last so, night. Yeah. So that uh, so there's Ross doing his thing and yep. then they will have steady coverage of a reporter team of reporters going back and forth between Lewiston, which is I think roughly an hour and a half, yeah, uh, one way little, I believe, little more, maybe a little uh, more, yeah, couple yeah. hours. Um, yeah. So there's there's a lot of a, a lot of driving um, and a lot of keeping people in place until um, until the story is over. And uh, Ross was talking last night uh, when when asked you know what it was like on the way up, and he said there there were police at every yeah. exit. Yep, that absolutely. He saw. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah, I've got some memories of some New Hampshire yeah. stories where you're racing to the scene along with law enforcement, and it's a surreal moment when. You're going really fast on the highway, yeah. and the cops are going much faster by you, and they don't care how fast you're going on the highway because they're responding to a call. Yeah, exactly. Scott Spradling is here. We didn't really expect to be talking about this uh, this morning, but it is interesting uh, to see how this all unfolds. Right. I mean, it really is, and most <laughs> people will never uh, you know, have the experience uh, of knowing what it's like in a newsroom. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's true, too. Uh, but uh, but I, I think people uh, are intrigued uh, by how how it all unfolds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's divided roles and it gets uh, complicated quickly. But there's a, a unifying force to try to get the story and, and help people. And maybe after the break, you could talk about a couple of the experiences sure. you had in your reporting career. Be glad to at WMUR. Sure. We'll take a break. Scott Spradling from the Spradling Group, from the Scott Spradling Band, yes. from New Hampshire Motor Speedway. <laughs> I mean, this man does it all, folks. He does it all and does it well. Uh, thank you, Ken. We will take a break. Kale & Company continues here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. We'll be right back. 
Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Scott Spradling in the house. Hello, hello. Hey, there he is. He's from the Scott Spradling group, of the Spradling group and uh, Scott Spradling band. I feel like I need to come up with Do- more original names. Doing some, doing some. <laughs> Naming everything after myself. I chalked the, took the Scott well, Spradling car up on the Scott Spradling highway. There let's, you go. Can we just knock that off? Come on. <laughs> well, look at this show, Kale and Company, right? Yeah. yeah, but you're you're a titan of broadcasting, oh, my yeah. friend. Oh, I'm a titan of something. I'm not <laughs> sure what it is. But uh, at any rate, uh, we were talking before the break about the uh, the tragedy that uh, took place last night uh, around seven o'clock in in Portland, Maine, between uh, a bowling alley and a bar. Which you know, originally when I heard that. I thought, well, they must be in you know, relatively close proximity. And then I heard later on on WMUR that they were four miles apart. Yeah. 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 So yeah. he had to cover some distance. He definitely did. Yeah. yeah. Unless there was someone else involved. But right now, the person of interest is Robert Card, yeah. who has a history. And uh, he was, uh, uh, I, I believe, in the Army mm-hmm. and uh, was a, a gun instructor. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, he knows how to handle the weapon, and uh, it's just a tragedy. It, ta- it takes your breath away because you have 22 people uh, dead, and you had uh, you know, countless others. I mean, you're talking 30, 40, I've heard as many as maybe 60 other people wounded. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in a matter of just a very, very short time, becomes, really. It becomes difficult to wrap your head around it emotionally. Yeah. It's a very difficult time. And uh, WMUR did a, a terrific job with it uh, last night. And this morning, uh, Aaron Falo was up there. Ray Brewer was up there. Of course, mm-hmm. Ray is everywhere all the time. But, <laughs> Indeed. But, but uh, you know, Aaron Falo, this, this happened at 7 o'clock last night. I don't know what time Aaron Falo goes to bed. I don't have that information. But she has to get up wicked early. Oh, yeah. To do her job yep. at WMUR in the morning. When would she get word? I mean, so she go, would have head yeah, up there. Uh, she would have probably been awakened sometime yeah. in the middle of the night and and urged to change her morning routine to be able to get to the station, to get into a vehicle, to get up there with a with a videographer. Mm-hmm. And those the the logistics you you sort of fly the plane as you're building it when it comes to your plan. Yeah. But the the mantra for the newsroom is just get there, just get there. And um, you know, it was obvious right away the significance and size and scope of this particular story. So you throw all of your resources at it. And that's, you know, you, you, you get to the scene first, you worry about the logistics of getting them back and what to do with them in the meantime later on. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's just uh, incredible to, to tr- even try to wrap your head around it. And I know you, as a reporter, a longtime reporter at WMUR, had uh, your share of uh, you know, maybe not of this particular magnitude, but uh, you had your your share of uh, covering stories similar to this. Yeah, yes, sir. I, I the the two that come to mind. One is the local story of the the Colebrook shootings that happened in the late '90s with uh, with Carl Draga, who had uh, a mental break and shot a newspaper publisher, uh, shot and killed two state troopers, um, as well as another uh, 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 North Country resident, and then went on the run and. What I remember about that day was I happened to be at the New Hampshire Department of Safety at State Police Headquarters at the moment the incident began. Mm. So when the emergency calls came in, and mind you, the distance between Concord and Colebrook is not short. Right. So as soon as the calls came in, um, most of the building emptied out. 
uh, the troopers jumped on the road and we were there covering a completely different story and witnessed what was going on behind the scenes and then the logistics of it. And the state police and commissioner at the time, um, Dick Flynn, allowed me to stay behind the scenes and see what they were trying to do. And I, I got a chance to view the challenges of communications, um, not just because it was up into the North Country, but it was a multi-agency response. Fish and Game, local police, Vermont State Police, they were a number of different agencies. And the technology of communication was not such that they could all jump onto the same channel and talk to one another. So communication and clarity was a huge initial challenge. And that's what I remember behind the scenes was watching the state police logistic challenges of trying to track this person down and how they needed to get creative and clever on the fly. Um, and then the the other one that we all remember that who are old enough is just the the day that 9-11 happened and mm-hmm. how it just sent us all scrambling into uniquely different directions because New Hampshire lost souls as well. And yes. there were I was dispatched to the airport. I was at the airport at, by 10 o'clock um, and waiting for the flight that came in from New York City to get eyewitness interviews of people that left the city as the towers were burning and what their observations were. And what I remember was the surreality of the day that um, we all witnessed it on live TV. And then I remember doing a live shot at noon at an airport on a Tuesday in September, and it was a ghost town. There wasn't anybody there. Everything was shut down. And I just, that was the moment of impact for me with the emotions of it, the building collapsing. And then standing in an empty airport, I felt like I was in the middle of a Stephen King movie where this is not right. It was completely empty, devoid of employees. There was just security. And um, that was that was a tough that was emotionally the toughest stretch of days as a reporter. Oh, I can well imagine. Right. Because you suspend the disbelief. You focus on on the stories in front of you, whether it's memorial services or interviewing the the widow of one of the souls that was lost on flight 11. uh, and and then just dealing with the follow-up stories of what was going on in New York and the impacted lives in New Hampshire. And I remember you just had to be stoic all day, and then you'd go home and look for the updates on the news, and that's, I think, when everybody's emotions would catch up with you, and it was it was a rinse-and-repeat exercise like that day after day. It was very, very difficult. It, it was, and for those who, who weren't around uh, in, in 2001, I mean, it was continuous coverage. It was. There was nothing days, else. Networks and local stations. Yeah. 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 It was It was really something. And, and there came a point very quickly afterwards where, um, because there was so much going on and so many different scenes and so many developments happening quickly, it was, it was a rapid fire of information. And then after a couple of days, that all sort of stopped. It became about what was going on at Ground Zero in New York City. And the pace of updates and information and flow of, of hope was beginning to dwindle. And you start to settle into the slog of it all and the weight of the, the impact of, of what happened. Um, and it just it, 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 uh, it was tough. It was, a, it was a hard time to be a reporter. Mm. I was proud of what, what my colleagues and I did during that coverage. But it was also it took an emotional toll on everybody. Oh, there's no question that it did. I, I can only imagine those those like you who were were there and had to interview uh, survivors and uh, folks that witnessed it. Uh, it has to be especially draining. It's hard. Yeah. It's it's very hard to go and knock. It's it's the worst part of journalism. Oh, uh, you know, people yeah. um, people I think make some assumptions about what um, what goes on, but to put yourself into the mode of knocking on a stranger's door, introducing yourself, and trying to talk to them about their immediate crushing sudden loss and 
going through the motions of asking them, is there anything you would like to say? Do you, because some people want to slam the door in your face, punch you in the throat. Yeah. Others want to talk about their lost loved one as a part of their own process, as a part of their mourning, that they want people to know who this person was. So you don't know until you start the conversation after you've knocked on the door right. what, 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 that, what the experience right. is going to yeah. be. Yeah. And it is, it's, a, it's a have-to exercise for the media, and there's different ways to accomplish it to be respectful and, and, and not obnoxious. Um, but it is, man, it's a draining exercise. It is, ex- it is extraordinarily difficult. Oh, it's got to be, yeah. And uh, I, I just, uh, my heart goes out to, you know, all of the uh, families of the the victims, yeah. And uh, what what they're going through right now, I don't know if all the victims even have uh, yet to, to be identified. Yeah, I just but, don't know. Uh, that massive manhunt is underway right now in Maine after the uh, the shooting last night that spanned uh, two locations at least. At least 22 people dead and uh, at least 30 wounded. And uh, reports were that there were a lot more than that wounded uh, last night. We'll have to uh, wait and see. But, uh, wow, just it takes your breath away, really. It does. It really really does, especially when, yeah, it is a couple of hours away, but it's still... Seems Close. like it's right next door. It does. And, yeah. uh, Hearts and, go out to everyone involved yeah, right now. Really. Scott Spradling is in the house, and uh, we'll talk a little politics uh, after the break. Kale and Company live here on WKXL for a Thursday. Great to have you along with us, and uh, we will be right back. We're presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Scott Spradling is here from the Spradling Group, Scott Spradling Band, and uh, doing some uh, work now at uh, New Hampshire Motor Speedway. Yes, sir. You've been involved with the track for a while, but... Uh, filling in for Shannon while uh, has she had the baby? She's yet? had the baby. She had. He's beautiful. Yeah, he's ah. already a month old. She had him in late September. So ah. she and her her uh, her beau are doing just great. The family's wonderful, and uh, Shannon is uh, um, adjusting to the new wonderful life of parenthood. And they're just I, they're you know they're just doing great. I'm I'm so excited for her. Um, for those of you in the sort of the media and business world, Shannon Stevens is is just one of the all-time greats. She's a, a, just an absolute joy to work with. Very, very good at what she does as the director of communications over at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. But she had her, her first baby last month, a little baby boy, and oh my God, and he's adorable, and everybody's healthy, and they're making the adjustment to being the newest members of the Sleepless Night Club. So uh, all is well. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying my darndest to fill in her shoes uh, and, and fill in the gaps, but of course, she's so well prepared. She did most of the homework assignments that were needing to be taken care of in the first couple of months of her departure. Yeah. And so there's a lot there's a lot that she's already handled. But yeah, she's doing great and uh, and we're very excited for her. I saw there was uh, an event coming up this weekend at New yes. Hampshire Motor Speedway. Oh my gosh. The, you know, there's there's always something going on and that's what I that's what I love about the track. Uh, there's um, it's a it's a really great family feel and they go they go for as long as they can until the weather begins to to sort of take over a little bit, and yeah. so they've got they've got a couple more weeks before they shut it down. And uh, 
Yeah, there's just a, there's always something to do. It's great. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, people think of it as uh, you know, oh, it's one weekend a year, but no, it's, no. it's not. Oh my it's gosh, not, yeah. they, oh, they they've <laughs> yeah. got. I mean, uh, by the by the time it's all done, because they really try to get things up and running in April, and then don't shut down until the end of this month. So you know, they squeeze a lot into those uh, into those days, and there's event almost yeah. every single day because there's a lot of clubs yeah, and sure. private things that go on as well and yeah. track experiences. But there's there's the BMW Car Club, there's the Porsche Car Club, there's motorcycle clubs and then you've got different events that go on where they like to use the space itself and not necessarily the track itself so there's always something interesting going on 24 hours of lemons and the uh well that's what i was talking speaking of squeezing things in that's it and that is so that is so fun because people will take cars and it's a there's a limit on it you you have to get a beater of a car Mm. whose value and 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 sort of like motor abilities is extraordinarily low like Mm. the value of only like a thousand dollars and then you have to nurse that thing through what is like the 24 hours of Le Mans which is a huge international race where they go around the clock this is different they don't do it for 24 straight hours but they do it for big chunks of time and it's usually raising money for charity uh, raising awareness for different events but you get to see a very unique collection of vehicles on the track and it's a lot of fun and uh, um, it's a great annual event. Yeah, I guess so, and uh, so it's open to the public. It is yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. Come and check it all out. It's fun to watch, and uh, you, <laughs> you will definitely, um, you will definitely see things racing around the track that you uh, don't expect to see. Don't expect, and it's great because <laughs> you don't see on Sunday afternoon. You definitely right? don't, no, and that you don't even see driving on the highway. Right. So it's uh, it's always a lot of fun, but uh, it's it's a great event, and it's a fun team building exercise. A lot of young people get involved with it because for them, it's a foray into um, what it's like to take some type of a vehicle and nurse it through um, a, a high energy high speed exercise for periods of the time so it, there are there are a lot of local repair shops mm-hmm. and race teams that like to do this as a side hustle where they yeah. take something that is barely breathing and then they have to try to figure out how to make that thing run for hours at a time on a road course wow. it's fun it sounds like a lot of fun it's great it really it's great does. one of these years I'll make it yeah, I can't definitely. do it this weekend okay. but one of these years <laughs> fair enough, fair I, enough. I, will, I will make it but, okay uh, but at any rate, Scott is uh, very much involved uh, still in the uh, in the political scene. So we, we I originally brought you in here with the idea of talking a lot about uh, the uh, New Hampshire primary, sure, uh, which will will still be first in the nation. That's right. And uh, I I think it's been one of the more bizarre uh, primary yes. seasons that we've ever seen. I would agree, Ken. When we're looking down the, the, um, the, the lane here of the last 60 to 90 days of the presidential primary, and we are having the kinds of conversations we're having about the two front runners, one of whom is not even going to be on the ballot. Um, we're in some slightly politically surreal times. Um, I, you know, I, in, in terms of the headlines, we've got, We've got a like so the front runner incumbent president is deciding he doesn't want New Hampshire to be first in the nation and is not going to not only not campaign but won't be on the ballot. So it puts Democrats into an unusual position of having to stand by their man by having to write his name in on a ballot, mm-hmm. which at the moment is only going to have, I think, one and maybe a couple of names. Yeah. So Democrats are left in a somewhat um, complicated position going into the primary and independents are now going to only play on the Republican side of the ballot because there's literally no reason otherwise to participate on the Democratic side. And it's raising some interesting conversational questions about 
what this is all going to look like in New Hampshire because independents can sign up and grab whichever ballot they want on either side. So you've got a front runner in Donald Trump who is, as we're all watching, facing numerous different legal challenges while running his national campaign. Right. And he yeah. was here to sign up. So, I mean, he's yeah. oh, he's he participating, playing the role, yeah. visiting, yeah. doing his yeah. thing. But there, uh, when you look at the Republican side of this, I sort of feel like um, it, you've got a point on the horizon and you've got two completely different starting points. One is the Donald Trump legal challenges and the other is the political election process. And they're moving at angles towards one another to that point of the horizon. And it's a race to see what is going to be completed first, because some of the challenges and, and charges that Donald Trump, the man faces in some of these courtrooms, especially in the state of Georgia, uh, threaten to derail the campaign yep. and make it yeah. on, as a practical level almost impossible to continue a campaign if you're found guilty of some of the very serious charges that are happening, at least in Georgia. So there's um, there, it's almost a race within a race that's happening right now. Yeah. And the one thing I will say is I'm still deeply proud of the level of activism and participation and activity around the presidential primary itself. And, you know, I think that when the dust settles on all of it, we'll have the process completed for 2024 and we'll be lining up to be first in the nation again in 2028. I have no doubt in my mind that New Hampshire's position will stay. And I think the Democratic National Committee is going to have to have a long look in the mirror when this is all done, because the process changes they're making are designed to benefit Joe Biden, yeah. not Democrats. And when you essentially take steps to potentially alienate a state like New Hampshire, which is traditionally a purple state, meaning it can go Republican red or Democrat blue, and those four electoral votes matter. Yep. When you're talking about a national race where really only nine or 10 states are gonna decide the outcome, and New Hampshire's one of them, why in the holy heck would you alienate that state? Uh, why would you do that? Because New Hampshire, had it not gone for Al Gore, I'm sorry, had it not gone for George Bush in 2000, yeah. the Florida debate would wouldn't have, never, have ever happened right. because it was that close with electoral counts. Yeah, the Chad battle would never right. have uh, That's ensued. right. It wouldn't have happened. <laughs> so the, the outcomes matter and intentions matter. And our four electorals, we may be a tiny state, but we matter in both the primaries Absolutely. and in the general election. So the, um, the, the carelessness with which the DNC is, is playing this game to just benefit one guy yeah. is yeah. Um, it's stupid. And I think we're going to see where I, I believe they're going to reel that back in, because when you've got a different field of candidates, many of whom will have ties to New Hampshire, mm -hmm. they're not going to be quite so on board with the idea of, uh, of trying to kick us. Uh, in the teeth yeah, <laughs> and well, kick us somewhere else in line. Kick us to the curb, yeah. yeah. yeah well, so, really. That, I'm off my soapbox now. No, Sorry, no, Ken. it's okay. Uh, and Just frustrating. Because me. I think a lot of people, I, I am sure if you asked any Democrat privately, uh, they are not. If you even asked Ray Buckley in, in private, chairman of the uh, Democratic Party in New Hampshire, uh, he can't be very happy about Joe Biden not putting his name no, on the ballot. He, I, that, it, um, that is not a job I would ever want right now because Ray Buckley's having to walk that line between keeping the momentum around Democratic candidates and the party and, and, and helping to try to campaign for Joe Biden's reelection while dealing with this 
really tough situation that fellow Democrats have put him into. So it, it's it's very difficult. You've got the DNC battling it out and Ray Buckley having to basically say, listen, Dems, write in Joe Biden so that he still wins in New Hampshire and and we'll fight the good fight about first in the nation later. That's yeah. a that's a tough that's a tough two front battle. It, it really is. Uh, welcome to your job, David <laughs> Scanlon, right? <laughs> right. He's doing a great job by the do, way. He is doing Go a David. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Scott Spratling in the house here today, and uh, geez, we're heading down the home stretch here. My goodness. And time flies when you're talking about intriguing topics like we have <laughs> uh, thus far today. And uh, we'll have more coming up after the break. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by our good friends at Northeast Delta Dental. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Joined in studio today by the great Scott Spradling of the Spradling Group, the Scott Spradling Band, which is terrific. Oh, thank you. And uh, doing some work at the New Hampshire Motor Speedway now. Absolutely, yeah, among other things. Yeah, just trying to, Among you know, a lot of other fill things. The, fill the yeah, dance card. I, I see on TV. I'm just trying to keep up when, with Ken and Cat around here. Whenever there's a big breaking political story, you always see Scott Spradling <laughs> on WMUR. And it, and it's great. I mean, uh, you you still contribute. Oh, yeah. I appreciate it. It's you know it's it's um it is a wonderful fraternity in local media. I I love and admire the the journalists that are out there every day covering news and trying to help deliver the highlights of what's going on out there for the rest of us who have day jobs and then just want to know what's going on out there. So it's it's great. And the presidential primary is always a thrilling and historic time in New Hampshire, even as things are a little. A little different than they've been before. They, they uh, sure are. It's we, still active. We, we don't know the date as yet, no. uh, but uh, Iowa, the caucuses are going to be January 15th. Right. So it's usually the following Tuesday. Yeah. Right. So, so that'd be are, the 23rd or, yep, of January. 23rd. And, you know, it's interesting. People always say, well, Scott, or not just Scott, look at the polls um, in this particular case. Donald Trump is so far out in front, and the polls are set. We all know what's going to happen. Mm. But if you were to historically... Look back at the state of races in the fall, 60 to 90 days out before the the actual results, you would see some very, very interesting things. Yeah. And the, the people and voters of New Hampshire, in many ways, are only now beginning to tune in with that sense of, okay, I've got a decision to make. And we're a late-breaking, deciding bunch of humans. And so we, we like to date before we commit to the political marriage. Mm-hmm. And very frequently, those decisions break in the last 72 hours yeah. of the entire race into January. We don't have to decide until it's time to vote, so we don't. And that does mean that the field that is set right now is not necessarily the field that will be um, you know battling to the finish with maybe some surprising results. And I'll give you, I'll give you two examples. Um, uh, two names from the Democratic side of the previous primary where, uh, remember Pete Buttigieg yep. and Amy Klobuchar in the fall before the election, before the primary, were both dwindling in the two and three and 4% range, way low mm-hmm. on the polls. Mm-hmm. They surged up to finish second and third. And that was only over a 60 to 90 day window of time. 
So for those who are in the single digits and deep in the pack, there's still a lot of time to make connections with voters. And, you know, it's a, the, the Republican field remains wide open. There are a wide variety of options, and we should not be making any conclusionary decisions about a campaign until we actually see people voting on these campaigns. No, exactly. So, so we'll no. see. It'll be interesting. Oh, yeah. I do know that resources are becoming an issue for some candidates. Um, Mike Pence has made no bones about mm. the fact that resources are thin. There's a lot of talk about other resources around other campaigns, such right. as Ron DeSantis yeah. and uh, Tim Scott. Tim Scott. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. th- you know, those those conversations are happening, but... You know, we we also can remember um, in 2007, John McCain getting off a plane in New Hampshire from Washington, carrying his own bags with no staffer by himself, symbolically saying, I don't have a lot of resources right now. Things aren't going great for me right now, but I'm still here. Yeah. And he fought his way through and he won that primary in New Hampshire that year in 2008 as well. So there's a. Uh, there's a there's a lot to be focused on in New Hampshire. I'm sorry, not not 08, 04. Oh, wait. No, oh, wait. Uh, yeah, yeah. God, the numbers start to run together. Yeah. But the, the the point is, is that you don't count people out in October nope. for an election that's being held in January, February. You very, can't do it. Very true. So so let's say theoretically that, that South Carolina, because they haven't announced their date as yeah. yet either. Yeah, true. So what if they move their primary, let's say, even ahead of the Iowa caucuses. Sure. I mean, I guess that's a possibility, yeah, right? Absolutely. It's definitely a possibility. So what I th- on a practical for a practical purpose, it just means that we would be uh, wishing everyone a happy new year and voting potentially <laughs> within the same 24-hour window. New Year's Eve. Exactly. You know, right? I, that, and it is, again, it's the beautiful part of New Hampshire's ability to get things ready. David Scanlon has his plan. The Secretary of State understands what's at stake. The most important thing that they need to do is print up the ballots. Yeah. And that's why... The filing period is now and wrapping up. And once it's done, they can print the ballots. They don't necessarily have to have a date on them. They can just be the official ballots so that if they are ready and in position and the towns are equally ready and in position, we're good at this. We can be voting at the drop of a hat if we need to and without a whole heck of a lot of notice. So the one thing about uh, the one thing that's underestimated about New Hampshire is our ability to scramble into place and get something going with an actual election yeah. very, very quickly. So and we can do that with far more ease than other more um, populated states like a South Carolina. The logistics of them getting that together requires them to have to set that date on the horizon and we can beat it. So I, I in, in, in David Scanlon, our secretary of state and in New Hampshire, I completely trust. Absolutely. And Scott, I, I know you have moderated many debates uh, in your day. The Republicans have had two thus far, have mm. another one uh, coming up yes, uh, shortly uh, in Miami. Uh, Donald Trump will be holding a rally of his own somewhere in that vicinity on that night, not mm-hmm. not be participating once again. And there are rumors anyway that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy will not be on the stage that night either. But just setting that aside, both of those factors, what is your what are your thoughts on the first two Republican debates? You know, these are um, these are tough exercises. And I so you asked me as a, a former moderator, someone who's been on the stage with that before. It is extraordinarily difficult when you have a large group of people and yeah. multiple voices and perspectives to have what might feel like an honest and open dialogue and conversation where you can flush out some differences, give people you know reasonably equal and fair access time and cover the ground that you want to cover. 
Um, I think the the margin for error with the moderators is either being too loose or too tough and then being too cute with the questions. Um, and I think that's that those are the those are the boundaries, right? Those are the danger zones with a large number of candidates on stage. Controlling the stage is also just the biggest challenge that you have because you want you want to strike that balance between exchanges between the candidates, which are usually the most memorable moments, the things that we want to see and the things that, that generate the most discussion afterwards. But you don't want them to run roughshod over some kind of a structure so that, yes, they can have that moment, but move off the moment and move into something else next. And that it's it's tricky to do without looking heavy-handed as a moderator um, and cutting people off or looking like you have no control. The, the the moving target element of this, Ken, is that these candidates are getting better and better at the exercise and getting more and more comfortable with being on the same stage together. Um, it, you know, we are doing the narrowing exercise of the number of people that will be allowed on the stage because that's how they've decided to do that in this cycle through the Republican Party. Interesting way of doing it. Um, obviously, fewer voices allows you to cover more ground and see the differences better. But uh, I'm always a fan of having a slightly more freewheeling exchange where the candidates can talk to one another. Um, but controlling it is hard. So uh, I think we've seen that in the first two debates where the, the moderators have struggled to control the stage. What do you think the the perfect number of moderators would be? We saw we've seen one, we've seen two, yeah. we've seen three. I think three is far too, too many. I agree. Two yeah. two helps with a large group, and yeah. then when you're talking about maybe you know between two and four candidates, I think one moderator yeah. is just fine to yeah. continue moving things along. And you know if the campaigns, if the candidates themselves felt from the stage that they had, uh, they were going to have their opportunities to speak. Um, I think you would see a, a maybe slightly more patience with all of that. But when you've got when you've got an issue that you throw out there, the clock is ticking. Everybody's supposed to have equal time to be able to give an answer. And then there's other issues that the moderators want to get to. Mm. But there are points that the candidates that haven't had a chance to say anything right. want to make on that topic because yeah. it's once that topic goes, they're on to something else. It sets up a natural tension that makes it very hard. And that's why you start leaning into you know, the Doug Burgum's shooting, shouting from the corner saying, wait, wait, what about me? I've got to say yeah. something here. Yeah. And it's hard. It's 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 not an easy exercise. So, I mean, fewer allows for a, wide, a wider conversation. But when Donald Trump and potentially Ramaswamy are not going to be on the stage, you're removing two critical voices in the conversation that would make the conversation totally different if it, they were exactly. on stage. So yeah, exactly. it, it's hard because it brings an, an almost like a false comparison. Yeah to the debate stage because you don't have the full field. You don't have all of the leading options for Republicans to be able to pick and choose and see what it looks like. The next one is going to be on uh, NBC November 8th. I hope they don't have three moderators because they step on one another. They, they do. They, they do. They know, oh, is it Mike? Or is it show? You know, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of confusion last there time. There is. Yeah. And you've got to walk that line between letting the yeah. candidates talk to each other and then moving things along. And that's yeah. there's an art to that. And I don't profess to be the artist, but it's it's hard to be able to do that, to let it let the moment breathe for a minute. And then refocus and get on to the next moment. It's uh, it's, it's not it's easy. It's a tough job. Yeah. It, there's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, okay. Uh, the first two, I know we're winding down here, unfortunately. We mm -hmm. could talk all day about these things. But uh, anybody come out on top uh, between the first two uh, 
debates, who do you think has shown the best? In I, the- I think from just pure debate perspective, yeah. I think Nikki Haley has been yeah. a name on most mouths, yeah. um, and, and she has impressed. She's been able to attack and defend, and she's been the one that I think most people consensus would say, in a debate winner, she's been the winner both times. And she's really gained the most traction in New Hampshire. Totally agree. Yep. Yeah. Of, it of has the put other her, candidates, other bet. than Trump. Yeah. Yeah. It has yeah. propelled her as the increasingly lead option instead of Ron DeSantis. Yeah. The option is uh, instead of Donald Trump. In uh, just a few words, are you surprised that uh, DeSantis hasn't gained more traction than he has? Yeah, I think what surprises me the most is he keeps being given a lot of mulligans that other candidates aren't getting. He's getting multiple shots at, you know, at this process and um, hasn't maximized those opportunities yet. All right. Next appearance of the Scott Spradling Band. The big one. How about December 2nd, Rex Theater, 730 in Manchester. Saturday night. That's right. Go to rextheater.com. You can jump right in and grab tickets. December 2nd. All right. And uh, check it out. They they are terrific. As are you, Scott Spradling. Thank you, Ken. Uh, With or without the band. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. Many thanks to you and to Kat for uh, inviting me uh, up uh, this morning. Always a pleasure. And hope to have you back real soon. Yes. That'll do it for this edition of Kale & Company Friday Fun Bunch. Tomorrow with Tom Raffio and Kitty Ray right here. Kale and Company, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Remember, always look on the bright side of life, folks, and have a great Thursday. <laughs>